Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 185, Edward the King. First of all, just to remind you that I am a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network, a group of independent-minded folk who like a bit of a cast now and then. You can find out more at agorapodcastnetwork.com. This month, our featured podcast is the China History Podcast by Chris Stewart, 5,000 years in 30-minute chunks. You can find Chris at thehistoryofchina.wordpress.com. This week, then, I propose that we look at domestic politics during the second half of the reign of Edward IV, if that's OK with you. We've gone sort of thematic, have we not? What with jumping ahead with the execution of Clarence and the wars with France and Scotland. When I say we, I mean, of course, in the words of the great bard, Led Zepp, nobody's fault but mine. He's an odd figure to deal with, is our Edward IV. He's quite contradictory. And the tempting thing to do is to treat his report card a bit like the kid at school that clearly has loads of talents but just won't apply themselves. So I bring to your attention, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I bring to your attention the curious combination of energy and apathy in the civil wars, the enormous energy of 1461 and 1471, the lumpenness of 1470. I bring to your attention the French War, massive preparation, big army, but allowed himself to be distracted and turned aside for a handful of gold. Quite a big handful, it has to be said, but nonetheless, how much more tawdry than the gold of a man's reputation. Apologies, I just slipped into the boots of Uhtred of Bedenberg there, just for a brief moment. And also, we should remember the pasties. Anyway, I bring to your attention also the reputation of his later years, the comments made about the way he carried on with his personal life 
which I will revisit now. The proposition is that Edward was a man who liked something of the Dolce Vita, the way of the pasty, the song of the grape, and the detailed exploration of the physical and emotional differences between man and woman. In 1471, although we seem to have been talking about him for decades, he's still only a whippersnapper, really, 30 years old. Through the last 10 years of his life, he's always been able to rely on his good looks and fine physique. Everyone agrees he's something of an oil painting. He's a god of war, standing over six feet tall, in an age where on average folk were shorter than they are today. But equally, we can see the rather early onset of a change. There's that sharp little comment from Philippe de Comines about the king's waistline on the bridge, for example. Plus, there's plenty of comment that's come down to us through the ages that Edward was super fond of a good time. Edward's wife had to put up with a lifetime of royal mistresses. Without wanting to sound unsympathetic, this was by no means unusual for queens before or since, though it wasn't a given. But Edward was without doubt something of a champion in that department. Here, the much-quoted Italian Mancini. By much quoted, I mean, of course, much quoted by people writing about Edward IV, absolutely never quoted by weathermen or football commentators as far as I'm aware. Sadly, I believe I may have quoted these to you before. Sorry for that. Here we go. He was licentious in the extreme. Moreover, it was said that he had been most insolent to numerous women after he had subdued them. For as soon as he grew weary of dalliance... He gave up the ladies, much against their will, to other courtiers. He pursued with no discrimination the married and the unmarried, the noble and the lowly. However, he took none by force. The Croyland chronicler also waded in on Edward's passion for boon companionship, vanities, debauchery, extravagance and sensual enjoyments. OK, fine, so that sounds... Thoroughly irritating for wife Elizabeth. More so because one of his mistresses was clearly rather more long-lived than the others. Mistress Elizabeth Shaw, often called Jane Shaw for some reason. A flavour of Elizabeth Shaw's character comes down the years from Thomas More. For a proper wit she had, merry of company and quick of answer. For many he had, but her he loved. We'll have more of Elizabeth Shaw in a guest episode from James Bolton, but I think you get the picture. This went together with the thickening wasting, if I can put it like that, and here's Mancini again. In food and drink, he was most immoderate. It was his habit, so I have learned, to take an emetic for the delight of gorging his stomach once more. For this reason, he had grown fat in the loins. I didn't know the word emetic, and imagined that maybe an emetic was something to sort of I don't know, clean the palate with, you know, like a sorbet or something. So I looked it up. Ew, gross. Also, fat in the loins. Taught me through that, exactly what that means. But anyway, once again, we get the point. He liked a good time and was letting himself go in the process. Put this together with a love of fine clothing, a touch of vanity, a pinch of spending money on buildings and you seem to have a king heading for a disastrous reign, who was likely to be an idle layabout with about as much use as the proverbial chocolate teapot. 
Well, you might make that assumption, but actually, it's very clear that Edward was actively and constantly involved in the government of the kingdom. That in the traditional medieval idiom, it was the king's will that drove government, both in concept and also in detail. Which is a good thing, because that was what your medieval kingdom demanded. Hate it or loathe it, leave your liberal credentials at the door. It's all about one person that can manage the competing demands of the great men of the kingdom and set a direction to follow. Edward's fingers are all over the government of England. And I don't mean that here was a guy with just the big picture who waved an airy hand from the sun lounger while brandishing his cocktail and told his minions to go do. His involvement was day-to-day in detail. Henry VI's great failing has been his inability or lack of desire to get involved and manage his kingdom and his great men. And the result had not been good. Not good at all. Or at least not good unless you happen to like 20 years of murder and mayhem. Right from the start, Edward made it clear that this would be a personal monarchy and a personal monarchy like everyone expected. From the throne at his first parliament, he promised to maintain the king's peace and deliver justice personally. He promised to help the commercial affairs of the country to make England rich. And it was no idle boast. Edward was directly involved in the delivery of justice, whether going on tour around his kingdom or in the Star Chamber in Westminster. But more generally, his direction and energy was felt by the organs of government from day one. In the context of this very personal involvement, it's very difficult indeed to understand quite how one man managed an entire country. I personally have difficulty managing breakfast, let alone a country. All over the country, from gentry to the magnates, there were folks reaching out their metaphorical hands to the king to target his metaphorical sleeve and ask for a favour. This bloke over here is trying to steal my lands. I really should have these or those rights or get a job, mate. All these and more. Now, obviously, however energetic Edward was, there was but one of him. And as we have discussed, he needed to find some time to spend with his mistresses, his wine or his venison pasties. So there needed to be a process, however informal, to reach him. And if you were a bloke in the back of beyond, like, say, oh, Loughborough or something like that, that could be a problem. And so what you needed was an advocate at court, someone influential who could get the king's attention. And this is where the likes of Hastings and Bullshit, the treasurer of England, really swept up. Gifts from well-wishers all over the country, asking them to intervene on their behalf with the king. Many did come down to London and attempt to get the king's attention personally and directly. Now, you had about as much chance of an interview as finding Elvis, so most requests were submitted as written petitions. And the entrance court thronged with men trying to push their petitions on the king or his councillors as they passed by. So look, it was a bit of a challenge, but we know that Edward took his kingly duties seriously, and unlike Henry VI, gave the personal impetus the state so badly needed. We have a large number of warrants, letters and petitions that bear his signature. There is a great increase in the number of documents signed under the signet, Not sure how much I've talked about signets and seals, so just to clarify. If you wanted an official document, it had to be sealed. That could be done by the Great Seal of State, held by the Chancellor, or it could be directly from the King by his very own seal, called the signet. 
So the significance of the increased use of the signet seal is that it indicated Edward's own personal and private interest in all of these matters. So, we've established that although Edward might like a pasty and a party, he was in no way an idle man, and that he brought back to government the energy that England had so badly lacked under Henry VI. Now, there is an argument that goes even further that says that Edward IV instituted a revolution in government, changes which are normally ascribed to the Tudors. That under Edward, the move towards a modern, centralised state began, where financial control moved much closer to the king's personal control, where control and government was centralised, carried out directly from a civil service in the court at Westminster. Where that court at Westminster became the locus, the be-all and end-all of political influence, pulling everything into its greedy maw. Well, there is some evidence to support this view. Under Edward, the king's influence was felt much more directly throughout the country. He appointed household men or men connected to the royal households as justice of the peace or as sheriffs. He appointed special commissions of oye et termine to re-establish justice in the shire. His tight control of the royal lands and forests brought him into direct conflict or contact with the gentry. Edward also built an administrative structure that was much more independent of the great men of the realm than it had been before. So, starting at the top, the royal council was very much the king's beast and very much a group designed to implement the king's will. It was not, as it had been at times of crisis or minority, a regular and ruling organisation. It gave Edward a forum where he could discuss ideas of foreign and domestic policy. If there was something particularly weighty to agree, like war, then there might be a specially summoned meeting. But essentially, the point I'm trying to make was that the King's Council was very much an advisory council rather than an executive council. It met solely as the King wished it to and it was populated by the people that Edward wanted there. Generally, as you sit there and visualise the king sitting with his councillors, you should be thinking of a group of somewhere between 9 and 20 people. Even the king found it a problem getting people to come to his meetings, apparently, which is something of a shocker. I mean, if the king had asked me, I'd have gone straight away, no questions asked, Gov. Anyway, there would be the great officers of state there most of the time, so the Chancellor, the Treasurer, the Keeper of the Privy Seal. Henry Bourchier, the Earl of Essex, tended to act like a sort of council president by the looks of things. The Bourchiers, both Thomas and Henry, were long-term and loyal supporters of York, and here they were in their pomp. So then you'd have a bunch of churchmen, as you'd expect. Interestingly enough, though, there's a theme that emerges in the 70s of Edward choosing to go for men of humbler origin amongst the clergy, but men with talent. And so John Morton, Rotherham of York, Russell of Lincoln. There's a theme here that we'll pick up in a minute again. On the lay side, you would expect to see a bunch of the great magnates, the great men of the realm, regularly sitting on the council. The time-honoured image of the king and his great men ruling the realm. Henry II as primus inter pares, first amongst equals. Alfred and his aldermen. And there are a few of these great men in a few of the royal councils, but in general they're not very prominent. By and large, 
This isn't because the king didn't invite them, but they really didn't have time. Too many other things to do, magnating sort of thing. Two exceptions from this were the Duke of Norfolk and the Earl of Suffolk. Essentially, this pair were actually actively excluded. Obviously, Edward thought them either troublesome or idiotic. The other exception, actually, was the Duke of Buckingham. He was also notably absent from the centre of government. Now, this is odd. As a royal duke, Buckingham should have been at the very centre of things. And yet he's never there under Edward. Remember this, because this will have consequences. But then, to give it another perspective about Buckingham, even Gloucester very rarely attended. So during the 70s, I think he came down to London but two times for royal councils. And so what you get in the council meetings is a bunch of barons. More specifically, a bunch of barons who'd been promoted out of the ranks of the gentry by Edward. The route to success for these men was service in the royal household. You got yourself in there and then you proved your general handiness. Once the king knew he could rely on you, there was a good chance you'd be promoted to sit on the royal council and potentially be promoted to the baronage and you were away. The most obvious example was William Hastings himself. But there are a number of others, like John Dinham, John Fogg, John Scott. And I could go on, but seriously, this is just going to become a list of names. And since you all find names really irritating, I'll just stop right there. It may be a little much to push an idea that Edward was a big believer in meritocracy. But there is a kernel of something there. Government was for Edward a practical matter. He chose the best people he could find for the job and had, within reason, no concerns about their background. On the other hand, I wouldn't want to go too far with the idea. Edward was in no way writing earnest papers on the importance of social mobility, talent and potential of the masses. A peasant, as far as Edward's concerned, should remain just that, a peasant. But within the confines of the Middle Ages, Edward was a man who promoted talent first rather than his friends or his great men. Most kings of England before Edward had used the clergy as a natural source of educated civil servants. And in fact, in the good old days of the Normans, as hopefully you'll still remember, the clergy were pretty much the only source, since no one else could write. But now, literacy was much more widespread, especially among the male gentry. More than any preceding king... With some competition from Richard II and Henry IV, Edward used laymen rather than the clergy. And just like the king's council, used men from the gentry. It was mainly men from the gentry that made up Edward's household, something like 250 to 300 men strong, excluding all the below-stair stuff, that is to say, the domestic departments. Within this household, then, there was an inner circle. These were the knights and esquires of the body, as they were called. The body in question being the king's body, obviously not just any old body left lying around. By 1483, there were probably around 30 of these knights and esquires of the body, so it was a pretty exclusive club. The pretty exclusive club was led by the senior officers of the household, of the king's household, and the official head was the steward of the king's household. And usually this post was indeed reserved for a proper knob, a magnate. 
These knights of the body had a very lucrative gift, the gift of close proximity to the king. I say lucrative because, of course, if someone wanted you to go and present a petition to the king, you were perfectly entitled to expect an emollient, something to encourage you to do so. We can make too much of this. By and large, the gifts and inducements they received from petitioners were a nice added extra rather than the big earner. The big earner came in the form of grants of land, offices and salaries from the king. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This inner circle of competent men, the knights and the esquires of the body, lived a varied life. Why not take one or two of them as an example so you can get an idea of the sort of things these folks do? Why not eat our livers instead? I hear you cry, but sadly the die is cast and the podcast is already written. We're going to talk about a chap called William Parr. William Parr was from Westmoreland in the far northwest of England, one of England's lost counties as it happens. If you're in a pub quiz or something like that, remember that the county town of Westmoreland was Appleby. That's Appleby. That, my friends, is possibly the most irrelevant fact of all the irrelevant facts you've learnt listening to this podcast. Anyway, William Parr, Westmoreland. His family were staunch followers of the Neville family. But when Warwick turned his coat, they answered Edward's call, and they swapped sides just at the right time. William was then appointed controller of the royal household. The controller was essentially second in command to the steward of the royal household. So, in addition to managing that household, he was on the King's Council as well. He was an MP, and he was High Sheriff of Westmoreland. In 1474, he became a Knight of the Garter. It's pretty exceptional for a household knight. In 1475, he was with the King during his invasion of France. And then in 1479, he was part of the diplomatic mission to Scotland to discuss the breaches of the truce, a process that led, of course, to war. William Parr died in 1483. With the family established, one of his descendants, Catherine Parr, was to be the wife of Henry VIII. Essentially, as one of Edward's inner circle of knights of the body, you had to be confident to turn your hand to pretty much anything. Administration, politics, war, justice, diplomacy. In return, you could be richly rewarded and your family joined the exclusive ranks of the nobility. So, there we go. To briefly summarise where we are in our discussion. Edward, fat, becoming fatter, sex, food, alcohol, but nonetheless personally committed, and an active king who drove policy and execution of policy every day of his life, despite being surrounded by a swarm of petitioners desperate to catch his eye. The king ruling at the centre, supported by a small cohort of trusted, talented men, the knights and esquires of the body. 
One of the features then of kingship and politics in the 15th century was the increasing importance of the court, of the royal court. It was a phenomenon all over Europe. Contrast the world of Henry II and that of Edward IV. So, on the one hand, in Henry II's time, the court was constantly on the move. Henry, although supreme, was clearly identified as primus inter pares, first among equals. There's that really nice story, if you remember, of the king's court on the road. And the king was sitting there with the most powerful men in the land on a bunch of logs. And Hugh of Lincoln squeezed himself in next to the king and started jossing him to get himself back into royal favour. Well, while we had Peter of Blois moaning about how hideous court life was back then, he'd have fainted with horror at the mere thought of the 15th century model. Because all that itinerant stuff had basically stopped, or at least was much reduced. The king now lived for the vast majority of his life between a few palaces in the London area, Westminster, Eltham, Windsor. When he went travelling, it was an occasion for applause and note and was often for a specific purpose, like a justice drive, oie et termine. The kings almost never go north of the Midlands, the more fool them, and even that was a bit of a stretch. Plus, the kings, justices and lawyers used to travel around all over the place. Now they're all set in the great Westminster Hall, on the king's benches. There are still justices in air travelling around, but the point is that they have a permanent home now, and it's in London. One of the consequences then of all this stability was that you could devote much more time and effort to the grandeur and richness of your court. Burgundy's dukes, very consciously, set out to make their court the envy of Europe, to impress the world with their power and wealth and erudition and make the point that they were in no way just an adjunct of the Kingdom of France. It was the same for Edward and his court. A lavish display, elaborate etiquette, Elaborate ritual accentuated the difference and the power of the king. No more of that primus inter pares rubbish. Just primus, if you don't mind. And also, since the king was no longer coming to you, you had to go to court if you had ambition, or if you needed the king to help you with your problems. So now politics and influence were all operated in one place and the seagulls and vultures gathered and squabbled and pinched and fought for the one thing that really mattered, the favour of the king. All of this might be giving you the impression that Edward was a magnate-hater, a man who distrusted the power and wealth of the magnates and barons and wanted to cut them out of the equation. And who could blame the lad if that were the case, given everything he'd just gone through? And indeed, there has been something of a historical debate about this. I'm sure you will be amused and diverted to know. Really, the debate is along the same lines as our opening question. Did Edward actually transform the government of England before the Tudors got their grubby hands on it? And actually, every possible position seems to have been held at one time or other. So, there's one line of argument that says... Edward never got away from the essential Yorkist problem that plagued them from 1450, that they were a faction, and a relatively small one at that. And Edward was always in that faction's pocket, always beholden to a small group of powerful men. 
Right at the other end of the scale was another group arguing that this was a vile and hideous life for which the relevant historians should forever burn in furious hellfire. Well, I exaggerate for effect. You know what I mean. They disagreed. They instead argued that Edward squished his baronage so completely that by the end of his reign there were no overmighty subjects left at all. And then, of course, inevitably you've got the folk in the middle arguing that Edward sort of started the work of curbing baronial power, maybe, possibly, perhaps. Before we get on to all of that, it's worth asking the basic question. As far as Edward IV was concerned, what are the baronage actually for? I mean, what do they do? I mean, given that he had all his trusted folk around him in the household from the gentry, why bother with the barons? I mean, assuming you could get rid of them, which even now, of course, we've never quite managed to do. Well, as far as Edward was concerned, he'd look after the central policy and direction of the land. He'd set the rules and the laws around trade and foreign relations, all the important stuff. The job of the barons was to look after the implementation of the king's authority in the regions. So what we see happening was Edward effectively setting up a small group of trusted lieutenants whose job it was to look after things in their hood. The first of these was, of course, Gloucester. Trusted, conscientious Gloucester, Lord of the North. The Woodville Grey was made Marquis of Dorset to look after things down there. The Stanleys in the northwest, Hastings in the Midlands, and so on. In Wales and the Welsh marches came an innovation. The Council of Wales. It came about because Edward had to provide for his son, Edward. Edward was made Prince of Wales and Earl of Chester in 1471. I'm sure he was delighted. Though since he was one, it's unlikely. So, since he was one, and his ability to tell grown-ups wouldn't be developed until he was much older, or four if he'd been a girl, a council of 25 people was put together, a bit like a regency. At the time, they didn't have much power, but then things kept happening and people kept saying, ooh, the Council of Wales can deal with that. Things like riots and raiding and inappropriate male choirs. In 1474, Anthony Woodville, Earl Rivers, was appointed as governor and ruler of the prince's household, based in Ludlow. And basically, the Council of Wales became the focus of royal power in the region and became the court of justice for the whole region. It would last until the Glorious Revolution. Anyway, Edward made all of this work because he was a talented manager of men, as pretty much all our successful monarchs have been so far, because, as we've said, despite the new primacy of the court, medieval kingship was essentially personal. He was full of bonhomie, essentially trusting while not a fool, a man who could inspire loyalty and trust, but who nonetheless would make the difficult and contentious decisions men like Henry VI had shied away from. No one was ever in any doubt about who was boss. Nonetheless, there were consequences of Edward's approach. One was the start of a division that would be a major theme of the Tudor monarchy, the split between court and country. A lack of understanding between them both, a range of country peers who were effectively excluded from politics and government that went on at the centre. As we see from the life of John Paston, if you wanted to succeed and get on, tending your estates wasn't the right way to do it. 
you had to be where it was happening at court. And it was a nightmarish commitment if you weren't that way inclined. The second was that in creating these powerful regional lordships, Edward essentially delegated control. There's a tension here, history-wise, to boot. According to some historians, Edward's controlling fingers were in every pie. To others, he just trusted his satraps to exercise his authority on his behalf and let them get on with it. I favour the latter argument I mustered it, while totally agreeing that Edward was on top of all of this. So after Towton, if you think about it, there'd always been the potential for violence and trouble with Warwick. After 1471, there is nary a flicker of revolt from anywhere. England recognised they had a figure who could command complete respect and authority. And given that Queen Elizabeth was churning out babies like they were going out of fashion, it looked very much as though the Yorkists were here to stay. Going back to that theme I introduced at the very start then, did Edward IV introduce a new kind of monarchy, the modern state that traditionally is thought of as being part of the modern world? Which for England, of course, starts in 1485, very quickly, just like that. One moment, muddy, miserable, oppressed, next moment, coffee percolator and the house lights left up bright. Before we try and answer that question, we haven't talked about money. One of Henry VI's big hairy problems had been a general lack of spondulics. By the way, spondulics, now there's a word. Apparently, a word that comes from you Americans, about 1850s, Mark Twain and all that. Possibly from the Greek spondulicus, a seashell used as currency, spondulicus. And I'm told that although the US gave the word to the UK... It's now only the UK that uses it. Incroyable, mes Anyway, money. First thing. Although Edward was a vain sort of creature who was utterly confident he looked great and all the girls loved him and he wanted the English court to be a byword for elegance and beauty, he was in fact a good deal more thrifty than the likes of Henry IV and Henry VI as far as his household expenses were concerned. Edward used a sophisticated financial technique to achieve this seemingly impossible feat. The sophisticated technique of being a tight-fisted so-and-so. By which I mean that both Henry IV and Henry VI were soft touches to their friends and family. A mate or an aged A came along to them and said, Go on, give us a quid till the end of the week. And they give them a permanent annuity for the rest of their lives until a substantial percentage of royal income just went straight out the door as soon as it came in. Now your Edward was having none of that. In his reign, there were four acts of resumption. Not sure if you remember what those were, but they were acts forced on Henry VI by a grumpy parliament to make him take back the crown's lands that he'd given away, and therefore get the income back and be able to live on his own without getting parliament to raise taxation. Henry and Margaret were livid, most upset at having to do this. Well, Edward had four acts of resumption. And it was he, he was the guy that was pushing it. It suited him, down to the ground. Get rid of the bloodsuckers, blame someone else, get to buy himself a new pair of velvet pants and those shoes with the curly toes at the end. And actually, Edward is credited with something of a revolution in royal finances. Through a ruthless programme of managing the royal estates effectively and getting a proper return. Essentially, what happened here was removing control of the royal land and income from the hands of the exchequer and taking it directly into the king, into what was called the wardrobe. 
Obviously, taking management of the royal estates into a wardrobe sounds thoroughly silly, but wardrobe meant into the king's own hands, his own chamber finance. This is because the exchequer system and the chancery was old, tired and rubbish. You farmed out the land for a rent at a fixed rent and then got stuffed. Though given he was king, quite why he didn't get the exchequer to reform is beyond me. But it is something of a big deal, this idea of the king taking finances of the realm into his own hands. It's a feature of Tudor as well as York, financial control in the royal hands, being ruthless to noble spongers. However, it's probably rather overstated for Edward. There's really no sign he created a modern bureaucracy around this. This is more the case of an intelligent king looking for answers to specific problems rather than a radical reformer. In his search for money, in 1464-5, Edward did the ultimate naughtiness, a re-coinage. You call in all the old coin, then you reduce the amount of bullion for the same face value of the coin and send it out the door again. And you pocket the difference on the way out. It's a triumph. I may try it at home, not quite sure how, but I'll give it a go. I'm summarising wildly and shamelessly here, but the long and short is that by the end of the reign, Edward was more than solvent. Income up, expenditure down. And in fact, Edward was able to fund the first year of the Scottish War without having to ask Parliament. But partly, of course, this was the French pension of £10,000 a year talking, and we know England paid a price for that pension in other ways. While I'm on the broad subject of money, Edward was also something of a trader. On a personal basis, that is. He actually equipped ships himself with merchandise, sent them out, counted them back in. There's a hint of scandal in this. Monarchs really shouldn't be grubbing around with this sort of thing. It's a bit of an outrage. Surely not in trade, darling. And then on a national basis, Edward took a keen interest too inviting people over from other countries, for example, who had industrial innovations to offer, offering awards and incentives to merchants and towns to build ships, grow trade. He courted and flattered and involved the City of London in his government. It's another example of Edward's energy and his involvement in the daily life of the kingdom. So, in summary, Edward IV, did he transform the government of England from medieval to modern or not? I have to say, I think not, though my opinion is worth no more than a surprisingly worthless thing. He comes across to me as a straight, down-the-line, honest-to-goodness, no-poo medieval king, and a jolly good one to boot, despite his dodgy moments and his passion for pasties. Well, actually, I'm not sure I mind that one. I'm partial to a pasty myself, as it happens. A good king that innovated and improved, but didn't mess with the underlying fundamentals. More improving on the medieval model because essentially Edward doesn't radically alter the balance between central and regional authority. Yes, he drives the bus, but he does it by tacitly agreeing with the magnates that they have their realm and he has his. Don't mess, sort of thing. Which only leads it to me, ladies and gentlemen, to thank you all for your kind attention and to thank those of you who have donated, such as my faithful and most laudable monthly donators, Adrian and Jim, and also those generous souls who have donated this week. Roy, Maria and Inga. Thanks everyone, good luck and have a great week. Planning for your next trip? 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.